Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. You know, Pim Fox, we hear a lot about the AT&T and Time Warner merger, and we've heard uh, Donald Trump, uh, president-elect, talk about it and say that he opposes it. Uh, are we at least uh, heard, that, according to sources, as reported by Bloomberg, uh, that he uh, has told people he still opposes it. So can this deal still get done? I want to bring in Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners in New York. Porter, what do you think is going on here? I mean... Can can President-elect Trump even weigh in on this deal in any practical way? He, actually, he can't, but uh, that's not going to stop him. And, and the one thing we have learned about President-elect Trump is that whatever he says is always reversible uh, in a millisecond because he's been doing it every day. He's, he's, he's got a very an interesting meeting in an hour and a half with uh, the senior U.S. intelligent community uh, leaders, and my guess is he's going to reverse his uh, uh, love affair that he's had with Julian Assange uh, when that meeting is over. But regarding Time Warner and AT&T, the, the two new... Uh, Trump uh, appointees to the FCC have both come out very strongly in favor of approving the deal. Uh, there's been no problem uh, surfaced at, at the Obama Justice Department, um, and I don't think that, uh, that Trump's uh, team uh, is going to uh, see this as anything but a very positive. Jeff, Sesh, uh, Jeff Buskis uh, uh, and Randall Stevenson, uh, when they came to Congress and, and uh, testified about this deal, really pointed out the, the, uh, the, the, the fact that most people in Washington hadn't yet realized that the competition is not uh, other cable or telecom companies. It's the Fightful Five. It's the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts. Uh, those companies are and Facebook. They're, they're going to rule the media market going forward. And AT&T and Time Warner are going to be rather, rather small competitors compared to the, the, the tech companies. Porter, if anyone doubts that this merger is going to happen, you're saying don't doubt it. It will I, happen at least not because of government interference. I, I, that's what I'm saying. And Je Jeff Bukas uh, came out last week and, and said, Chief Executive of Time Warner. Yes. Then there, he said there is no plan B. Uh, plan A is uh, what we're planning to do, and uh, um, it's going to go through. And, and if it doesn't, uh, that's it. We're going to stay standalone. But <laughs> that that was, had a hollow ring to it because uh, he's as vulnerable as uh, the other linear uh, media content providers. They have to expand. They have to go digital. And the, the huge consumer-facing uh, aspect of AT&T um, is, is going to elevate Time Warner into a very significant uh, competitive position against the, the tech giants. Porter, you know, there are going to be a lot of changes on in the media landscape next year, Absolutely. or this year, rather. Uh, two of the biggest moves that have been in the news recently are Megyn Kelly and Greta Von Susteren uh, moving to NBC from Fox. 
Do you think that Fox is going to uh, suffer from this? And conversely, do you think that NBC really will benefit? Well, the, 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 the loss of Roger Ailes has really uh, put the pressure on James and Lachlan Murdoch, who are, who are essentially running uh, the company right now, with, with uh, Rupert taking a, a much less uh, dominant role. And they have been both very... Uh, adamant, but James and Lachlan saying they want to keep Fox the way it is, positioned uh, as a, um, a partisan network, partisan-leaning network, but emphasize the, the hard news and what they call the fair and balanced aspect. And I, I think having having lost Megyn Kelly, especially because she was really a, a, a departure from the heavily partisan primetime uh, lineup that Fox has, that that is going to be a very interesting situation to see whether Fox continues down the road that they have traveled for for the last uh, 20 years. And the, the most important thing, however, that Fox is facing is the, the very serious demographic uh, situation. Uh, almost 60% of their audience is over 60 years old, and they are very, very weak in the key demographic, 18 to 49, which advertisers want. And despite the fact that they are the, the market leader in cable news right now, uh, the demographics are very poor. And if you start looking at the ads that are running on Fox, there's, there's more pharmaceutical and reverse mortgage advertising uh, than anything else. You don't see the cars and the soft drinks and, and the other uh, uh, major advertising categories that the other networks are carrying. So I think Fox has to do a lot of thinking about what kind of image and, and uh, format they want to go with going forward. And losing Megyn Kelly uh, was a very serious uh, loss to them. She's going to be replaced by Tucker Carlson. we gotta, we got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, uh, Porter Bibb. He is managing partner, MediaTek Capital Partners. Well, more than 200,000 people are at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and one of them is our guest, Dr. Alex Lido. He is the chief executive and the co-founder of Efficient Power Conversion. Dr. Lido, thank you very much for being with us. Hey, thank you. You know, I can't figure out whether we should start with you telling us what it's like to be at CES with all of the new things and great televisions and everything, or maybe start with something totally complicated like light light detection and ranging systems. Let's and start with the show. The show? You want the show? Yeah, or, I want the show. You know, he's what's the, the co- coolest thing that, Dr. Uh, Lita, there you go. what's the coolest thing that you've seen at the show today? Well, I, you know, look, I think the, the coolest things uh, all revolve around autonomous cars and uh, augmented reality. There's all sorts of displays on that right now, and uh, it, it, it's just amazing. You know, our lives are going to change quite a bit from both of those, uh, those uh, developments. So how do you envision our life being changed by some of these developments? Well, you know, I think the autonomous vehicle really takes away the need for individual car ownership. So, you know, that re- redefines how cities will be defined, how we'll get around. And really, there hasn't been a major change in transportation since the jet engine was developed uh, 60, 70 years ago. So this is really going to be a revolution, but it'll take time. It'll take, you know, 20, 20 years, 25 years, and everybody's going to expect it tomorrow. So um, 
Dr. Lito, this brings us back to uh, the substances that Pim was trying to get out. Um, your company produces uh, a substance that you're hoping will be instrumental in this revolution in the way that we trans uh, we, we get around, correct? That's correct. Yeah, we, we uh, make uh, products out of uh, gallium nitride, uh, and uh, these products are really the successor to silicon, which is the foundation of all of our computer chips and, and semiconductors, and it's, it's a whole lot faster, and it's lower cost. So it enables things like these light dete- detection and ranging systems and augmented reality systems, and in the next few years, you'll start seeing power cords disappearing, and, and I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who likes power cords. I think you just you you, you just made a, you made a convert here. I mean, honestly, you said power cords are going away, and I, I almost jumped up and down in my seat. See, I know. See how Everybody easy it is to make people them. happy, Doctor Lido. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, um, we were. Uh, I want you to just describe the actual thing uh, because right now it kind of looks like a hockey puck that sits on top of a an automobile and it spins around to get that three hundred and sixty degree thing? image. It's a hockey puck type. Yeah, but what does it do? What are, what are you talking well, about? Well, you want it's autonomous. A it's, a, it's a LIDAR. It's, okay. a, it's a LIDAR right. technology, and it, it spins around, and it creates uh, an almost instantaneous map of whatever it is that you're around, and it's done with lasers. Now, you've uh, partnered with uh, Velodyne to do something else, and it's much, much smaller. Tell us about it. So, you know, these LiDAR systems have been around uh, since the Google mapping cars uh, several years ago. They were one of the first users of it. And they really paint an immediate picture of the, uh, you know, all the objects in three dimensions around you. Uh, in, 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 and they give you three dimensions. The problem has been they've been very expensive. So getting them less expensive so that they can get on cars that are driven by you and me has been the goal. So we partnered with Velodyne and we developed some, uh, some much more advanced integrated circuits uh, with our gallium nitride devices uh, that are are allowing shrink and make these things smaller so you can't see them and also make them a whole lot cheaper so we can put uh, them on everyday cars. Dr. Lito, do you expect that in the future when we're all sort of just being driven around by our computers, uh, do you think that we're going to have to update the programs, the systems, and go to bring our cars to sort of uh, techies to, to get them fixed? I mean, I'm just trying to think about the realities of having one of these. So, first of all, you probably won't own the car. You know, somebody, it'll be a, you know, transportation as a service kind of thing. A car will arrive with no driver. You'll get in it. You'll arrive at your destination, kind of like an Uber without a driver, which is why Uber's experimenting with these things. Um, so, in terms of service and all that, uh, you know, the software updates will be over the air. I think Tesla's already pioneered that very successfully. Uh, and in terms of service, Electric vehicles are are fundamentally simpler than than, uh, gasoline and diesel vehicles, so I think that the amount of service has been proved to be a lot less on an electric car. Thank you so much. Really, really fascinating to hear uh, what you're seeing and what you're doing over there. Dr. Alex Lido, CEO and co-founder of Efficient Power Conversion, talking about the future uh, of our lives in cars that drive us around, that we don't own, that have all sorts of cool little gadgets. You know, next week... With no power cords. With no power cords. I mean, I am converted. And to get smarter on China, I want to focus right now on trade. We have Dan Moss. He is executive editor on Global Economics for Bloomberg News. And he can be followed on Twitter at Moss underscore 
Eco seems appropriate. Dan, thanks for being with us. Tell us the uh, what's going on now with China and President-elect Donald Trump and the back and forth of words. Pim, the two sides are really figuring out how they're going to dance with each other after January 20. The Chinese are probably wondering which Donald Trump walks into the Oval Office that afternoon after the ceremony. Is it Donald Trump the dealmaker advised by Rex Tillerson and Gary Cohn, or is it Donald Trump, the populist, hitting all the bases for the white working class in the manufacturing heartland? While the Chinese appear to be unsure of that, they're thinking, let's take out some insurance while we're at it and say, look, earlier in the week there was the line that there's a great lot of flowers outside key government ministries in Beijing, but inside there are also sticks. Now we're learning, well, look, American companies have a lot invested in China. We all knew that. The Chinese government is reminding the incoming administration of that, saying, hey, by the way, there are some things that we can do. We hope it won't come to that. We don't expect it'll come to that. But, hey, we're here and we're watching and we're waiting and we're not necessarily going to allow ourselves to be mulling over. You know, I was struck by this story that was uh, on the terminal this morning, and uh, I was struck in particular, I was talking about how China is preparing to step up the scrutiny of its U.S. companies, just sort of to what you were exactly talking about, Dan, uh, in a sort of uh, way to retaliate. But there was a quote here um, that was really uh, crucial to me. When you have a country with a large trade deficit that retaliates against a country with a large trade surplus with it, it's the country with the trade deficit i.e. the U.S. that wins. The country with the surplus loses every time. And America has had this trade deficit um, with China. It has been narrowing somewhat. Um, And yet, you know, there is this feeling, you know, who has more to lose here? They both do. And let's just take a step back. This didn't get any scrutiny at all during the course of the campaign. But the nature of the Chinese economy and what's driving it is changing significantly. And the nature of the US's economic relationship with China as a result is changing as well. This image we all have of people going to Guangdong to set up t-shirt factories, no one does that anymore because it's simply too expensive. That's gone elsewhere. When people think about trade with China, they think of that sort of thing, which is completely outmoded, or they think of stuff being loaded onto a ship and brought to Mexico for assembly and then to the U.S. The Chinese economy is increasingly driven by services. When people talk about the trade surplus and the trade deficit, they're talking about merchandise goods. Services exports from the United States to China are growing significantly. The Chinese current account surplus will basically disappear by 2020, according to the IMF. The most interesting U.S. company in China right now, arguably, is Starbucks. It's a services economy. The Chinese population is getting richer. Low-cost manufacturing doesn't make sense there anymore. Services and consumption now account for more than half of GDP. You know, so earlier this week, uh, President-elect Trump tweeted, China has been taking out massive amounts of money and wealth from the U.S. in totally one-sided trade, but won't help with North Korea. 
Nice, exclamation point. Um, you know, with a tweet like this, there you have a lot of people saying, look, we all have a lot to lose. Uh, international trade has really helped the economy. You know, is there something to what President-elect Trump is saying? Well, look, leaving aside the North Korea question. Right, <laughs> I, I don't want to get into yeah, that, right. Yeah, um, uh, not a lot of FDI going on there. Right. <laughs> look, but they both have a lot to lose. So, yeah, China's become wealthy from the opening of the economy that began under Deng Xiaoping in the late 70s. By the way, it's not just U.S. corporations that have gone in there. Japanese corporations, European corporations. U.S. corporations have also done well out of China. I mean, GM makes a huge amount of money out of China. Starbucks, again, services economy, big expansion plans within China. Hello, last time I checked, these were U.S. companies. So it really is a two-way thing. In fact, you could argue that they aren't really the first and second largest economies on the planet. They are actually one economy. Well, Dan, I was just going to try to get in. Can you do 15 seconds on them buying U.S. treasuries and the currency? Well, they buy U.S. treasuries, as do many governments. Right. The question is really whether they're going to keep selling them uh, at, at a pretty fast clip in order to support the UN. Um, and I think that's sort of the jury's still out whether they're going to have to do that um, and whether they're going to continue and whether yeah, or not. They've, been, they've, they've even put in certain capital controls and they've made it more difficult for people to take money out of the country and to even have foreign investors in the country. But it seems like some of those measures are starting to stick and the economy is, is solidifying to some degree. Dan Moss, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We can talk about this uh, for the rest of the show, and I would love to, actually, because I feel like this is the big backdrop for a lot of what happens next. Dan Moss, executive editor for Global Economics for Bloomberg. Well, when we want to learn more about the world economy, one place to look is the shipping industry. And here to help us is Urs Durr. He is the chief financial officer of TBS Ocean Logistics. Urs, uh, maybe just give a quick recap of your breadth of experience and tell us what's going on in the shipping industry right now that we can take away and use in our understanding of the world economy. Uh, Hey, Pim, and, and good morning, Lisa, and thanks for having me on, um, and Happy New Year. I think that this is a good uh, subject matter to start the year off and looking a little bit macro and, and global shipping. My background, just very briefly, I was uh, on the street for eight years as an equity analyst prior to this role, but also- I been, love that people here say on the street, and it doesn't mean, you know, on a corner. On the, you know, yes. You know, like with a tin can. I <laughs> You're was on waving, waving my hands, saying, buy this stock, <laughs> sell this stock. No. No, working at uh, Lazard and Clarkson's, uh, and um, and proud of that, I was a lender and, and a banker, and working in other shipping companies. Um, right now, in the in the dry bulk shipping markets where we compete, we have twenty six ships uh, under our control. We have no debt, a good balance sheet, but the industry itself is very much oversupplied. So there's too many ships. Uh, overall demand uh, was uh, fairly weak in 2016, but did improve in the second half of the year significantly as the dollar stabilized, uh, and um, the outlook for next year on a demand side is for demand to slightly exceed uh, fleet growth. So we do expect uh, freight rates to stabilize for ships. Um, but we have high iron ore inventories, I think you mentioned in one of the breaks. Um, we also have prices coming up. Uh, we have um, coking coal inventories in China uh, moving up again, but also prices coming high. And then we also have uh, Chinese New Year coming. So I expect the first quarter of this year, Freight rate-wise to be weak, 
Uh, I would also expect commodity prices to stabilize and possibly soften. And um, the rest of the year actually to be much better than 2016, which was a historic worst. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk about that. I mean, I was... Last year, a lot of people were talking about the Baltic dry and how it was plunging and the problem behind that and how it sort of indicated that the global economy was slowing. This is what a lot of people were looking at for edification about their slow growth or no growth forever type of theses. All of a sudden, uh, you are seeing a little bit of pickup, but not really that gangbusters growth that backs up what a lot of people are talking about now, which is sudden global reflation. I mean, where is the optimism coming from suddenly now? At the beginning of last year, there was a couple things that are going on in shipping. It's a great question. Um, there were far too many ships. There were a lot of ships being delivered in the first quarter uh, as well. Uh, but you also had the, a weakening dollar, and you had, uh, again, a first quarter that is typically soft for commodity demand growth. So you had the freight rates really coming off into a deep historic low. Uh, as the dollar stabilized, everyone noticed, the, particularly in Asia, particularly in China, which is 35% of the dry bulk demand market, seaborne demand that their inventories were low and the price was extremely attractive, much cheaper than their domestic sources of iron ore and coal. Uh, imports then improved very significantly. So year on year, Chinese iron ore import import demand, seaborne imports were up 9%. Domestic production was off 7%. Um, steel production is moving up. There's been good stimulus in China. China has also been rationalizing its coal mines. Um, part of that is clean air. Part of that is that many of the coal mines were losing money at those prices, and they don't want to subsidize them any longer, and there's cheap uh, uh, coal available, particularly from uh, Australia coming in. So the demand has been good. There's been good stimulus in China. Second half of the year was rather strong. Urs, I just want to put some numbers to all of this because in the dry bulk sector, you got maybe four groups, right? You right. got your Cape Size, Panamax, Supermax, Handy Size. Yeah. I was looking at the year to, uh, comparisons, year on year comparisons. A Cape size, 12300 today, right? That'll, that's how much it'll cost me. Right. To, uh, for, per day, right? Correct. All right. Last uh, year, same time, 3800 bucks. Right. So from 3800 to over 12000 what do we need to take away from that? Overall, demand has improved in the second half of the year. There was very good uh, uh, scrapping of ships also in the early part of last year. There has been no ordering of dry bulk ships now for two years. A year ago, it was one year, right? So there's there has been a rebalancing. But also, and this is very, very macro, but if you look at the commodity prices coming off as the dollar was collapsing, the dollar stabilizing and strengthening, um, typically we think, oh, the dollar strengthens, then it would be the commodities are cheaper. They are, yes, for the United States, but they're not for everyone else who buying them. They have to buy the dollars to buy the commodities. Then you end up having pricing in contango. People build uh, inventories. Now inventories are high. Looks like the dollar, not the dollar, excuse me, that uh, that's about as high as they're going to get due to their physical constraint. Uh, they're probably going to be some inventory eating over the course of the first quarter. So rates come down. But year on year, the overall conditions of the dry bulk markets are, are better. Whereas, uh, in 2015, I believe, hedge funds that had piled into the shipping industry in various ways hmm. got, yeah, you, you you laugh. I mean, it was like a bloodbath, right? I mean, they got hammered. It was uh, the source of a lot of pain, both at hedge funds as well as at some banks that had a lot of shipping uh, investments globally. Um, from an investment standpoint, are you seeing investors coming back? Well, I don't necessarily want to comment on other, you know, com com 
competing companies, but I think that the interest level now in shipping remains as, um, as strong as it was back then. Are but, you, is that what you basically mainly do is just make uh, shipping investments? No, no. We we uh, we own and control ships. So right. we're a shipping company, but we do have investors who are part of uh, that group that you mentioned. Um, and uh, there was some time ago, back in uh, some time ago, but in 2012 and 2013, there was a very strong story about eco ships. So there was a technological advantage of the new ships being built, and this was going to be a boom and make other ships obsolete. So there was quite a bit of ship ordering. Now those ships are delivering and it's keeping the market down. Right now, the interest is fundamental. The banks are worn out from this industry that's been in a bad shape for a solid almost decade, but let's call it eight years. The banks are worn out. Traditional sources of, of funding are worn out. Even the public markets seem rather weary and worn out. Uh, so it's going to take some rather creative uh, and smart investors to come in and buy uh, assets at a price that, that makes sense and, and put them into commercial managers such as ourselves uh, that can uh, beat the market for them. And so I, I, th I think the interest today fundamentally makes more sense than it did even two years ago. Thank you so much. This is definitely a fascinating sector and a really important one to watch, uh, often used as a bellwether for global growth. Uh, generally, the Baltic Dry is a classic index that a lot of people uh, keep an eye on. Urs Durr, CFO of TBS Ocean Logistics, talking about the global bulk and shipping industry of this year. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.